Welcome to Health Talks Now, bringing you the facts you need to keep you and your family well. We're happy you're tuning in today. Baptist Health is committed to providing compassionate, high-quality care that is centered on you. Listen to all of our podcasts to hear from Baptist Health physicians about the latest medical advancements and treatments. And get trusted information on timely health topics from our healthcare professionals. Whether you want to learn more about a specific condition or procedure or find tips for living a healthy lifestyle, Baptist Health is here to help you become a healthier you. Welcome back to Season 2 of the Health Talks Now podcast, a show brought to you by Baptist Health. Kendra and I are so glad to be back bringing you inside access to the health topics that matter to you and your family the most. It's so good to be back. We have some really exciting things lined up for season two, so if you're not already subscribed, go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. We're kicking off this season bringing you more information on the topic that's dominated the year, COVID-19. That's right, and today we are privileged to be joined by phone with a leading expert in the field of infectious disease, Dr. David Doherty. Dr. Doherty has spent countless hours studying and understanding COVID-19, and we're eager to jump into today's conversation. That's right. If you're just joining us, you want to go back and listen to the special edition of the COVID-19 series, HTN COVID-19, Baptist Health Responds, for some really valuable updates from Baptist Health CEO Gerard Coleman. Let's go now to our conversation with Dr. Doherty. Dr. Doherty, thank you for taking the time to join us for this important conversation today. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice at Baptist Health? Yeah, so I'm one of 11 physicians in our uh, private practice here, uh, Lexington Infectious Disease Consultants. We work at multiple hospitals. Our office is located at Baptist Health Lexington. I have been in uh, private practice uh, for almost, about two and a half years now. My father's also in this practice, uh, along with uh, nine other physicians. Mm -hmm. And we see infectious diseases, anything from COVID-19 to skin and soft tissue infections to HIV. It must be interesting, both working with your dad and then, you know, having a personal relationship outside of that has... Has COVID-19 affected your ability to gather with your family, even though you're exposed to your father in practice? Uh, yes, definitely. You know, this is kind of an, an ongoing topic uh, over the last year, basically, now, um, in terms of, you know, having pods or, or not, not exposing people and minimizing risk. And, you know, we have little kids, uh, we have uh, three children in, in my family and mm. the topic of school uh, also has come up. Uh, so yeah. it's been very difficult, but yeah, we, we've limited any family gatherings, uh, really not had them recently and limited travel, obviously not really done a lot of travel or anything. And, just really trying not, not to expose anybody else or, or ourselves. Uh, it's, and it's been, it's been difficult. I'm sure everybody has been dealing with this. We do as well as, as providers. Yeah, you're kind of uh, taking it from both ends. You're getting it in clinic and, and then you still have all the family uh, stressors that all the rest of us do. Right. And, you know, we have clinic here. 
we have the vaccine uh, trial clinic as well. And then, uh, you know, I'm seeing patients in the hospital right. and, and then I'm at home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have to be very careful. Okay. Well, we announced a month ago that University of Kentucky in partnership with Baptist Health Lexington and Norton Healthcare in Louisville were selected as testing sites for a phase three clinical research study called Ensemble trial to evaluate an investigational COVID-19 vaccine. What can you share with us in terms of progress and advancements in this last month? Yeah, so this trial is, is progressing nicely. We're enrolling a lot of people. We're actually, you know, the three sites combined, UK, Baptist, and Norton, are one of the top trial sites in terms of enrollment in the world. That's impressive. And, you know, I, I anticipate. Well, thank you. I, I anticipate that you know the trial hopefully will will complete enrollment within the next couple of weeks, and that's exciting. And so, we're really uh, pressing forward. We're we're working in the this weekend too. You know, keeping the clinic open on Saturday uh, to try to get uh, patients enrolled. And we really had help from the community. We need more help, too. <laughs> so uh, I encourage anybody that's interested to go to uh, stopcovidky.com and, uh, and sign up still. And so that magic number you all are looking for is somewhere around 2,000 participants. Is that right? Yeah, uh, that's that's the original goal. If we hit that, that's, that's great. Sure. We'd, we'd like to. Uh, that's local. Initially, we were looking at 60,000 enrollees internationally for this trial. It looks like we may hit our potentially our efficacy endpoint quicker than that before the 60,000, you know, because unfortunately we're having a massive outbreak of COVID across the country and and the world right now. So that's playing a role. And actually, we may need fewer enrolled in the trial because it's going to be easier to to prove uh, whether or not this vaccine is effective, uh, given the numbers. That makes sense. What a great partnership, too. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it's, it's been great. So, Well, let's talk now about a new treatment available to COVID-positive patients who meet certain criteria, and this is infusion therapy using monoclonal antibodies. Can you talk a little bit, give us kind of a high-level overview about what monoclonal antibody therapy entails how it works, who makes a good candidate, and when this would be an option for treatment. Yeah, so as you probably heard, there's a couple different uh, monoclonal antibodies that have recently received an emergency use authorization by the FDA, in particular one from Eli Lilly and another from uh, Regeneron. These are essentially uh, laboratory-made proteins that mimic the body's immune response in terms of fighting off viruses. And so the one from Eli Lilly is a single antibody. The one from Regeneron is is two antibodies. We think these are more effective. You know, we don't know exactly how effective they are yet. You know, the trials are ongoing, but we think they're more effective in the early phases of the illness. So these are actually not approved for inpatients or patients on oxygen due to COVID-19. Uh, because there's not really a proven benefit for this for those folks. So this is an outpatient treatment. Uh, we're still figuring out, as uh, I'm sure a lot of hospitals are around the country, how this will be administered without compromising resources uh, within the hospital system itself. And so this is an ongoing process. It seems to be a re- relatively safe uh, treatment 
there is some uh, slight concern for, you know, some people could have anaphylaxis. That, that is a risk, a potential risk factor for the treatment itself. Okay. But the, the idea behind it is to decrease ER visits and potentially uh, prevent hospitalization for COVID-19. This kind of reminds, obviously it's a completely different treatment, but similar to Tamiflu with influenza, you know, you have to get that early on or it really is ineffective. Similar here is it's what I hear you saying. And we actually think that probably, you know, a lot of the treatments like remdesivir is, is effective if given early. You know, we were mm-hmm. thinking that with convalescent plasma too, which would make sense if convalescent plasma is effective because it's a similar type of uh, theory as these monoclonal antibodies. Makes sense. Now, is this the antibody treatment that was given to President Trump? And is that why he had such a shortened hospital stay? The Regeneron antibody is is what uh, President Trump, I should say, Regeneron antibodies, because there's two of them, uh, are what, what he received. I can't say whether or not that's uh, what shortened his hospital stay. I, it's possible if, if he received it early enough that that could have – his body may not have developed antibodies on its own yet. Okay. And that's where it's beneficial in terms of decreasing maybe the, the uh, severity or duration of illness. The, he received several things, though. I'm sure he received uh, Decadron, uh, Remdesivir in the hospital. Makes so sense. it's difficult to say exactly what helped improve his outcome, yeah. if anything. So. Right. And this is given intravenously, correct? Uh, yes. So it's it's an intravenous infusion. Uh, I believe it lasts around an hour, and then you have to be monitored for an hour afterwards. Yeah, and so the the risks here of the anaphylaxis, and that's why the the challenge is the care setting in which it can be administered. Exactly. You know, this has been hospitals right now are being kind of asked to give this, I guess. Uh, but ideally, this is the kind of treatment. It's an outpatient therapy. Mm-hmm. Ideally, this would be given in an outpatient infusion center. But the complicating factor with that is you have people walking in with COVID-19. And so it's yeah. really it's really complicated in terms of, you know, one of the biggest strains on the healthcare system right now throughout the country is staff. It's right. actually not feds. And so where do you get the staff to triage these patients? Uh, and to staff the, the infusion, you know, the, the clinic and, and, and monitor these patients. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think there's so much emphasis on, on bed capacity, but really, you know, there's a, a shortage of healthcare workers even before COVID and now we're, we're quarantining our staff and. Well, the other complicating factor is, you know, some hospitals are thinking about using this med triaging from the ER mm-hmm. and deciding because, you know, it's only a, a given to patients that are high risk for progression that have underlying health conditions or over a certain age or BMI. You don't just give this to anybody that has early COVID-19 at this stage. It's not beneficial to to everybody. And so that's what it's approved for under the EUA. But the problem is if you're being triaged in the ER and the whole point, one of the main points of the drug is to decrease ER visits, you're increasing ER time. 
And you also, we don't want to flood the ER with people wanting this therapy either because it's going to be people that actually need admission, you know, that have low oxygen uh, coming in or or have other medical conditions uh, that need to be in the ER. So it is a difficult situation. Yeah. Vaccine misinformation is a tremendous problem in this country. We're aware of the millions of lives that are saved each year because of immunizations that protect against deadly diseases such as tetanus, measles, and influenza. But some alarming statistics remain. According to the CDC, half of adults do not get the annual flu shot. And concerns over vaccine side effects have led to increased mistrust and diseases that were once eradicated in our country are now seeing a resurgence because more and more parents are refusing to vaccinate. In fact, vaccination rates for both kindergartners and teenagers in half of all states have fallen below 95% or the level needed to provide maximum protection. Research also shows that about 50% of Americans plan to refuse the COVID-19 vaccine no matter what. What reassurance can you offer the public right now about this vaccine or vaccinations in general? Yeah, so I can vouch for Johnson & Johnson at least and, and the, you know, the whole process, the FDA, the Data Safety Monitoring Board, they're watching over this. The companies, at least, you know, I know, uh, you know, because I'm, I'm working on the Johnson & Johnson trial right now. Mm-hmm. They're doing a very, very good job. They have uh, monitors that come into the site, some that are blinded and some that are not blinded, that are, are monitoring the study progress. You know, we're monitoring it. And then you've got the Data Safety Monitoring Board. It's an external entity and, and the FDA that are also monitoring these clinical trials. Even though they're they're progressing rapidly, um, I don't want the general public to be afraid to take these vaccines just because of that, because so much uh, money and effort has been poured into this because we're in a pandemic. Mm-hmm. And the focus has to be on getting a safe, first, first of all, safe, but also effective vaccine as quick as possible and multiple of them, because we're in a dire situation here with the, with the pandemic and we need to protect people. Does it surprise or alarm you that 50% of Americans plan to refuse the vaccine? Well, there's always been a, a group of people in the, in the country that have not wanted to get vaccines. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's been a lot of uh, politics around the vaccine, uh, you know, in in the news, uh, vaccines in general. And it's just kind of just a heated topic. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't surprise me a a ton, but Mm -hmm. I'm hopeful that as as some of the, you know, the healthcare workers get vaccinated, as as this kind of rolls out, some more of the general public will you know, come around and and want a vaccine because, you know, I think obviously we need to continue masking and social distancing right now. But in order to get get out of this, we really do need the vaccines and we need a lot of the general public to get vaccinated in order to not wear a mask eventually outside again and be able to get back to our uh, somewhat normal lives that we we had before uh, this pandemic. Well, I think, as we mentioned, a lot of the hesitancy just revolves around misinformation. So let's take a minute to kind of address some of the specific questions and concerns that have been widely expressed about the COVID-19 vaccine and try to dispel some of that to maybe help alleviate some of the fears. 
So one of the major concerns cited among those hesitant to receive the vaccine is, as we mentioned, the time it's taken to develop it. You've responded a little bit to this, but what would you say to anyone who says, you know, their staunch opposition is that it's been developed way too fast? Well, I mean, there's still a, a lot of people that were being enrolled in these in these trials. Uh, so we're able to monitor these a lot of people in terms of safety. We're monitoring them before these you know EUAs are being rolled out or being applied for. They're being monitored for at least uh, you know a couple months and. There's just so much uh, effort being poured into this that I think people are surprised that the vaccines have moved along this quickly in the, in the trials because they're comparing it to other vaccine trials that have taken years. But that's not in a pandemic situation where uh, the money and the effort has been poured into this. There's hundreds of clinical trial sites across the U.S. and the world that are participating in these in these trials. So I do think that these trials are being uh, conducted uh, safely and and quickly, you know, quick at the same time. So I I think that can be done. With any vaccine, side effects of the COVID-19 vaccine have been of great interest. What can we expect? What are some of the initial trials showing? Well, I mean, I think with with any of these vaccines, you know, you can expect that there's a possibility that you could have uh, some immune response shortly, like within the first 24 to 48 hours Mm -hmm. after getting a a vaccine, as far as, you know, your body building up immunity and responding to the vaccine itself. So, you know, fever, maybe some muscle pains and uh, other symptoms, uh, maybe a little bit of uh, pain at the injection site. But I think aside from that, I'm, I'm hopeful that these vaccines, and, and they seem to be pretty effective. I can't you know, necessarily speak for the other vaccine trials, but uh, so far, everything has looked uh, pretty safe. So I'm excited uh, that we have so many vaccines this far along. Do we expect the immune response that's experienced to be more severe in immunocompromised individuals who get vaccinated? Not necessarily. I mean, it may actually be less uh, you know, of an immune response in immunocompromised or elderly individuals even. But, you know, some of this is yet to be determined. You know, right. we don't we don't know because, you know, they haven't been fully rolled out yet. Um, but I think for the most part, as far as immunocompromised individuals, it's tough to enroll the really immunocompromised individuals in the vaccine trials uh, because the vaccine might not respond like it would in a normal host. That makes sense. We won't really know that quite as much uh, during the vaccine trials uh, themselves because um, it might not be as big of an immune response. For instance, you know, ACE patients, sometimes will the vaccines will not be effective until we increase their uh, cell counts with the medications. Oh, and so okay. then uh, we can vaccinate them after their immune system kind of recovers. When will we likely see this vaccine arrive in Kentucky? And when do we expect it to be widely available? Uh, in general, so, you know, it's looking like the the Pfizer and Moderna, you know, they both applied for an EUA, mm-hmm. and uh, we may see those for healthcare workers in particular, and then it looks like uh, nursing home folks, you know, maybe within a matter of weeks. Yeah. As far as the general public, I'm thinking that 
we're going to hopefully have you know widespread vaccination by March and, and April. I, I don't know if we will by February. So I'm I'm hoping that March will have you know enough vaccine, enough vaccines uh, that are approved through an EUA emergency use authorization that will have uh, more widespread distribution across the country. And is Baptist Health prepared for the storage needs? Yes. Uh, Baptist, as, as, from what I know, uh, Baptist Health has anticipated uh, the storage needs uh, for these um, uh, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Great. Well, let's switch gears a little bit. As the pandemic has evolved and more time has elapsed in the recovery of patients from the initial surge back in March 2020, rather, attention is turning to the long-term effect on survivors' health. We've read news articles that mention lasting effects to the immune system, damage to the lungs, neurological and mental health impacts, brain fog and memory loss. What do we know right now about the long-term impact of COVID-19? I am concerned that there are things that we still, I know there are things that we still do not know about in terms of long-term damage. I am concerned about the long-term neurologic uh, side effects. I don't know that we fully understand this yet. I I don't think we do. The thing I think we're already understanding is the long-term what the long-term lung damage is going to be uh, like and i'm concerned about pulmonary fibrosis or you know kind of uh, scarring in the lungs especially in in patients uh, that get severe covid-19 and require oxygen uh, during an admission uh, or are on the ventilator and some people may require uh, oxygen for long periods of time and i'm hoping that this doesn't happen to too many people. We're trying to prevent this progression. As far as cardiac issues, I don't. I don't know that we know the full extent of organ damage uh, so far. I mean, we've seen short-term cardiac issues. Uh, we've seen clotting issues. We've seen strokes uh, that are associated with COVID-19 mm-hmm. in folks that have never had a stroke before. And of course, you know that leaves uh, some folks with long-term damage. Yeah, so. I am concerned. I think there's a lot of focus on mortality rates, but not enough focus on morbidity, uh, long-term consequences of having COVID. That's a great point. Well, the media is calling this season the third surge or the third wave. Do we think we've reached the peak of this wave in Kentucky? What are your predictions? And do we expect cases to continue to rise throughout the cold and flu season? You know, I think cases are going to, unfortunately, continue to remain elevated. I don't know how long they're going to continue to rise, but um, I think they're going to be elevated through probably at least until February, maybe March. I don't really see the cases declining in December or January even. And so uh, maybe you know, maybe at the end of January, but I, I think we're in for another a couple months at least of, of really uh, high case numbers. I think, you know, as we see more vaccines roll out and more folks in the general public get vaccinated, keep in mind that, you know, some of these vaccines, most of them require two doses a month apart. Ah, okay. So the Johnson & Johnson one doesn't, of course, uh, we're still completing enrollment uh, with that trial. But I think that 
things may start to naturally, you know, things got naturally better this last summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think in addition to things getting naturally better and, and more people getting vaccinated in the general public in, in March and April, I think things will start to get better over the summer. I don't think we'll have uh, pre-pandemic normal, but I think we will get back to more of a normal. Uh, masking will still be important in, in large uh, settings, but I think in terms of having more businesses open up and remain opened, I, I'm hopeful of that. I, I know a lot of small businesses have been really hurt. Yeah. Restaurants have been really hurt by this, and I'm I'm really hopeful that we, you know, the goal with the vaccines too is to get these businesses back open. Get that's right. the goal with masking. We need to get everything back open as soon as safely possible. But right now, it's just you know the the rates are too high, so we do not want the hospital systems to get overwhelmed. Um, So do you think we'll ever get back to a pre-COVID normal or do you think our quote unquote normal is forever altered because of this? I don't know what masking is going to look like in the future. I'm I'm hopeful that we will get closer to that pre-pandemic normal in 2022. It really depends. uh, A lot of it depends on, you know, how many people are willing to get vaccinated and how effective these vaccines are in terms of long-term efficacy. What is the durability? We still do not know that answer. That is one big answered question with these uh, vaccines because I think we have uh, good safety data so far, and we're going to continue to monitor folks. But most, you know, reactions to vaccines happen within the first couple months after vaccination. But in terms of long-term efficacy, we don't know. And so um, I'm hopeful, though, that in 2022, it's, uh, we're, we're going to be back uh, more towards our, our normal. Okay. Before we wrap up today's episode, we would love if you would share some advice for the holiday season. We know people are missing their families and traditions, and they're getting pandemic fatigue. But of course, we know the importance of taking precautionary measures to slow the spread of disease. What advice can you offer for those contemplating their holiday plans and travel, and who are simply exhausted from a year of limited contact, masking, etc.? Well, I, I would say that... We're very close to, you know, vaccines. And, you know, I would say especially, uh, well, I would say first off, it's probably not safe. It is not safe to have large family gatherings right now, unfortunately, especially indoors. And it's it's tough to have them outdoors uh, because of the cold weather in most areas. Uh, I'd say it's not the safest uh, time to travel either, being in uh Uh, around a lot of other people uh, during the traveling process. But for those that are going to do this, uh, despite what I say, I would say try to minimize exposure to your relatives that are elderly Mm -hmm. or have uh, comorbidities, other medical conditions. Try to protect them. Try to wear a mask uh, whenever around uh, people outside of your immediate family uh, that you're around all the time because – you know, most of the spread right now, or a lot of the spread, is is happening between different, uh, you know, between different families, or one, you know, immediate family to some some kind of um, some other family members uh, that they get together with, and right. so. 
I'm worried what it's going to look like, you know, a few weeks from now, a few weeks after Christmas. Um, you know, I, I think that the, the holiday season, along with the cold weather and fatigue from the pandemic, are really going to uh, exacerbate uh, what's happening. And um, until we get to a point where enough people are vaccinated and enough people are masking at the same time, I don't think things are really going to get better. What would you say to those people who still don't buy into this whole pandemic, who think it's this, you know, the same as the flu or it's who are, a hoax. or it's a hoax? What would you say to those folks? Well, um, I would say <laughs> aside from the fact that we don't want them in the hospital right now uh, without a mask on, <laughs> I, I'd invite them to the hospital to take a tour right now because, you know, we have more COVID patients in our hospital and most hospitals do around the country than we've had throughout this pandemic. And regardless of whether you think this is as simple as the flu, which the flu can be bad too, but regardless of, you know, whether you think this is a cold or not, it's taking up a lot of hospital beds and a lot of resources. And when that happens, when the resources are diverted towards COVID, mm -hmm. then your other medical conditions are going to be harder to care. For, you know, it's going to be harder to care for those. And so we don't want to get to a point where elective surgery is shut down again. Right. And some of these surgeries aren't quite as elective as you might think. It might be something like a postponing a coronary artery bypass surgery that's non-emergent. Wow. So, I mean, you know, it, that, that's what a lot of people are not thinking about. And so it, you, the pandemic is very real. I know a lot of people are fatigued, um, but it, it's happening. And we're trying to care for patients, uh, and we are caring for patients to the best of our ability. And we need the general public to help us. Well, Dr. Doherty, it's been a pleasure having you on our show today, and we really appreciate your time. We would love to do this again soon. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Kendra, did you hear, did he say 2022? He did. He certainly did. I'm just thankful that this is audio and not video. Yeah, my jaw fell open a little bit at that. Are you going to get the vaccine? Yeah, I think there was a lot of reassurance in today's episode. There's a lot of misinformation spreading around and it's easy to kind of question mm -hmm. what's true, and what's not, especially with the politics that have come into play this year. But when you hear straight from someone who's dedicated their life mm -hmm. to the study of infectious diseases and particularly COVID-19 in this past year, there was a great comfort in knowing that there are a lot of safety precautions in place and hearing and understanding how and why the vaccine was able to be produced so quickly, I yes. think was really, really interesting. Absolutely. I signed up for the clinical trial that he mentioned in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to have the opportunity to talk to his father as well. Yeah. I'm excited. We're going to be able to continue this as a mini series mm -hmm. and have Dr. Doherty back to join us for some more COVID-19 updates as we continue on through this third surge. Yes. And hopefully as we get closer to a widespread vaccine. Yeah. The information was very helpful. I thought it was really interesting. The point he made about the pandemic kind of prompting the resources, not only financially, but also the time and the effort that was afforded to be able to produce this vaccine, kind of a, a an all hands on deck 
approach around the world. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people who are skeptical about the timeline are comparing this vaccine trial to ones of years past. And if you think back even to the 2014 Ebola pandemic or the, uh, if you want to go way back all the way to the HIV and AIDS pandemic in the 80s, Mm The world didn't stop turning like it did this year. Yeah. Businesses weren't closed. No. Kids didn't get pulled out of school and small businesses didn't shut their doors. So it makes a lot of sense when you think about it that this has not only been an effort in the United States, but this has been a worldwide collaboration Mm -hmm. where literally all of the resources have been made available to come up with a solution to this so that we can try to get back to normal and save lives. Yeah. It's been a race and one that we'll all benefit from. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm excited to continue this series. Tune in next time on Health Talks Now, a show brought to you by Baptist Health. And if you have not subscribed already, please go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Send this episode to a friend who may have questions of their own about COVID-19. Yeah. Season two is going to be great. Let us know what you want to hear. Send us an email at bhsocial at bhsi.com. We'll see you next time on Health Talks Now. Thanks for tuning in to Health Talks Now. Staying healthy is a lifelong commitment, and Baptist Health can provide the support you need to lower your risks, improve your quality of life, and protect your long-term health. Visit baptisthealth.com to hear our other podcasts, learn about our services, and find more tips to help you stay a step ahead of your health. Baptist Health. Be a healthier you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as medical advice. The content in this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. This podcast is not designed to replace a physician's medical assessment and medical judgment. Always seek the advice of your physician with any questions or concerns you may have related to your personal health or regarding specific medical conditions. To find a Baptist Health provider, please visit baptisthealth.com.